Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Okay, so today, like I said, we're going to talk about preservation and what causes things to be preserved versus not. This is continuing on our discussion of archaeological evidence. So it's important to have a good understanding of why certain things are preserved and others aren't, because um, sometimes you know, we're asked to prove a negative, prove they didn't have corn by this time. Well, we're probably not going to find the corn, but we might find different types of artifacts because they're preserved where the corn itself wouldn't be. So it's important to understand why we see what we see. So uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is formation processes, or formation process or formation processes, if you want to be plural. Um, these are all the forces that affect preservation. All the forces that affect preservation. So it's really wide, all-encompassing sort of, um, basically everything that affects whether or not an artifact or feature is preserved in the archaeological record. And I throw out the term archaeological record, but I don't think I've ever defined it. Archaeological record is basically just everything that's preserved underground or underwater or somewhere that an archaeologist can get to it is considered the archaeological record. Pretty just catch-all thing for basically all evidence for archaeologists uh, falls under the archaeological record. Um, so formation process, all forces that affect preservation from the end of an artifact, ecofact, or features life to its recovery. So basically from when it's disposed of, either by accident or on purpose, to when it's dug up by the archaeologist. Everything that happens between those two points is part of formation processes. So we saw this um, slide, or parts of this slide before, um, we were talking about stratigraphy, but uh, so one formation process, right in the beginning, there would be the discard of these stone chips, and then sand blows over and covers them up, breaks down the hut that was there, or they get thrown out into a pit, in, uh, a midden, or a pit, and they get dug up again and put into a building as fill, right? So this is all formation process. It's forming the archaeological record, um, and then it gets thrown out again, or it gets incorporated into the building, which collapses, and then perhaps something else gets built on top of that, or an archaeologist digs it up. That's formation process, the process by which all of this comes together. And it's important to trace that history because we need to know as much as we can about the context. We need to know, has, is this the original context? Has it been moved? Remember primary and secondary context? A lot of what happens in formation process is recreated when we're discovering uh, about the context. Taphonomy is a very specific, uh, a more specific type of uh, preservation study. It's uh, the study of conditions affecting the preservation of plant or animal remains. So this is specific to plant or animal remains. Taphonomy, it technically means grave law, the law of the grave. Um, conditions that affect the preservation of plant or animal remains. For example, has anyone ever seen these guys before? Look familiar to anybody? 
These are from a famous expedition in Canada. This is a, kind of a household uh, word or a group, the Franklin Expedition. The Franklin Expedition sent out, uh, more than 160 years ago, the Franklin Expedition tried to find a Northwest Passage. And uh, just recently, a couple of years ago, um, they found uh, more of the ship and more remains. Actually, they found the ship because before that, all they had were these really awesome burials of these freeze-dried dudes um, who had really high lead content. So it was thought that they used to use um, the tin food or the canned food they used. They would use lead to seal it shut, which is kind of a problem because you're not supposed to eat lead. Um, these guys had pretty high elevated contents of lead in their bodies. Um, but they were put out and buried, buried. There wasn't much soil to bury them, but they were put off board in these coffins and buried. And you can see they're still pretty well preserved for being 160 years old. I hope we all look so good after 160 years. And uh, taphonomy would be looking at how were these guys preserved. And right, obviously, they were frozen. And when they're frozen, uh, have you ever eaten a popsicle that's been in the freezer for a long time? How do you know it's been in the freezer a long time? It's got ice on the outside. And how is it when you start to eat it? Remember? Anyone? Super concentrated, sticky, and gross. Because um, cold air, we all know this, living in a cold environment, cold air doesn't hold moisture. So it's very dry, right? When it's 20 below outside here, it's drier than the Sahara. So that's why you know your skin gets so dry and everything, right? Same thing when you freeze a body or a popsicle. Um, that super cold air is low in moisture content, so it pulls the moisture right out of things, kind of like a freeze-drying sort of process. So that's what happened to these guys. They're popsicles, basically. And all the moisture got pulled right out of their bodies. And they were desiccated and cold, which really suppresses microbial activity. Same thing with your popsicle, that the ice chips that are forming on the outside of it, that's moisture from inside the popsicle that's been pulled out. Fun. Um, so the taphonomy would be looking at, okay, why are these guys preserved? How did they decay or not decay? Um, and I would show you a picture of a, a Maya uh, burial, but in most of the Maya area, the soil is super acidic. And so all we find is, like, we call it a grease stain, I guess. It's not the, probably not the prop, most proper way to refer to it, but you'll see a burial with all the burial goods around the, the body. And then you'll just see like a darkened impression in the soil where there used to be a body. But because of the high acidic nature of the soil, it's gone. All of it, just gone. So uh, taphonomy would be studying how and why these things are preserved. Now we can break cultural or excuse me, formation processes down into cultural formation processes and natural. And I mean, obviously, you can guess from the name, one of them is largely human-driven and one of them is natural, but it's not quite so um, clear-cut. So cultural formation processes are deliberate or accidental activities, deliberate or accidental activities of humans which affect and create the archaeological record. Deliberate or accidental activities of humans which affect and create the archaeological record. So breaking that down, deliberate or accidental, don't care if they meant to do it or not. If a human did it, it's, it's cultural formation. Um, and usually we're saying directly, like 
if it's a natural process that's been sped up by humans, you could probably, you could, I guess you could argue that it's cultural formation process, but if it's like a, a flood, say the 1993 flood on the, uh, on the Red River or in the Mississippi River, right? You could argue that that was due to human beings um, canalizing and stopping up all this, all this river and not giving it a place to flood it and spread out farther upstream, and so it forced all this water downstream and caused flooding. Is that cultural formation process or natural formation? Eh, a little of both. Probably go with natural because it was a flood, but it, you can see where it gets a little, there's a bit of Venn diagram overlapping. Um, so we have all kinds of types of cultural formation, or flavors, if you will, of cultural formation process. There's the, uh, there's original behavior, so purposeful building and abandonment. Right, that's the original behavior. That would be a type of cultural formation process. Um, there's post-depositional processes. Let me write that out. Post-deposition. Post-depositional processes. These are things that happen after it's been purposefully deposited. So in this picture that we're seeing here, you can see, well, maybe, this mound is an old building in the Maya area, and the young man in the white t-shirt and hat is in a looter's pit or a looter's trench. And so um, a post-depositional cultural formation process is looting, right? So somebody went in and dug it up and got maybe something out of there. We'll never know. Um, but that's a cultural formation process. Discard is exactly what it sounds like. Discard. Just throwing things away uh, is a purposeful cultural formation process. Then there's burial. And burial is a deliberate interment. Burial is deliberate interment. If you fall in the ditch and get covered over by snow when the snowplow goes by and then you know, all the soil's on top of you from the, from the snow and the sand, and you know, nobody finds you in the spring, and then a couple of years go by, and you keep getting buried deeper and deeper in that ditch. That is not burial. That's accidental. Burial is intentional. Um, this is a pretty obvious example from South America, but uh, how would you know that there's intention behind this burial? Any clues? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's nicely laid out. There's obviously a, a function and a form and a symmetry. Uh, there's plenty of grave goods. There's some people who look like uh, they were buried along with the ruler. Uh, oftentimes, people would be killed um, or take their own lives or whatever, ritually killed to accompany their um, ruler into the afterlife. And you might think, oh, that's pretty mean. They're killing the butler and the maid to make them go look after the, uh, the ruler in the afterlife. But you have to remember that societies in the past were not as egalitarian as we like to think we are. And so uh, many times people, not everybody would make it to the equivalent of you know, the good life in the afterlife. There are all kinds of afterlives, depending on what culture you're in. There's you know, um, a wide variety of afterlives. Not all of them are good, and they're usually class-based. So only the upper class can get into the good one. 
And so, for example, here we might be dealing with an individual who died who allowed his servants to come with him, or probably him, or her into the afterlife. And so they would have very likely, although it's hard to know each individual, but very likely they would have willingly gone because that was the only way they were going to get eternal life in a good place rather than a ho-hum place. Like in the Aztecs, uh, most people who died lived under mountains and caves and just kind of like hung out in like moist, cold caves for the rest of eternity. So, you know, sacrificial victim or willing participant, kind of hard to say. But this is a burial, very clearly. Okay. This is a horde. Horde, H-O-A-R-D. A horde is... Um, deliberate interment, again, deliberate interment of valuables for safekeeping. Deliberate interment of valuables for safekeeping, right? Say, if you're hoarding something, right, you're saving it from destruction or being stolen or whatever. Um, you'll find hoards found all the time in the British press because uh, people in England, for some reason, love metal detectors. And you always hear about different hoards being found in farmers' fields. Uh, largely because the English countryside has been ravaged by invaders over and over and over, from the Normans to the Vikings um, to inter-English, uh, Scottish, Irish, Welsh, yada yada squabbles. So people would, instead of hiding their things in like a lockbox or a secret, you know, a secret uh, compartment or something in their house, although they may have done that as well, um, here we have a horde where people just buried it underground and hoped to come Find it later. Obviously, if we are finding a hoard as an archaeologist, something happened to them. We usually don't know what. Um, how do I know or how might I suppose that this pile of, these are decorative um, metal things that go around your wrist or your neck. Um, how would I know that this isn't a religious offering? How do I know that it's is there a way to know? Anybody? Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, all we have right now is a hole in the ground with a whole bunch of goldish looking stuff in it. Could have been religious. You know, I could see where, oh, we're giving an offering to some sort of deity that has to do with the ground, and so we're burying valuables. I could see that argument, but unless we have more information that shows that it's a religious offering. Often, not always, but often religious offerings are broken. Because if you think about it, uh, deities live in like the next world or a, a different plane than us, and we can't necessarily cross over to that plane. And so sometimes it's thought by ritually killing an object, you are passing it over to the next plane. So like you break a pot and you kill it, well, then that pot passes on just like a person would into the next world where it can be used by that deity that you're sacrificing it to. So the fact that these are all pristine might suggest hoard, but we don't know without knowing a lot more about the local religious practices. Hey, there's the question I just asked. Okay. Um, then we have accidental. Accidental, the accidental flavor of cultural formation processes. Spell that one, accidental. Um, so a lot of these were intentional. When they found Utsi the Iceman um, in the uh, on the border between 
um, Italy and Austria, they pretty well knew they weren't dealing with a burial. He was found face down with his arm under him, probably fell asleep real quick, um, with no offerings around him. He wasn't like in a, in a nice place for a burial dugout or anything like that. He was just kind of like laying there. Very likely accidental. And when they did more work on him, they were able to see that he had um, you know, uh, an arrowhead in him that he may have been running. We don't know exactly. It's like a 5,000-year-old murder mystery. Some people uh, have very like whodunit sorts of do um, documentaries about it that maybe we'll watch. Um, if, if I get really sick and we're missing class one day or something, I usually keep that on hand because it's an interesting uh, documentary about Utsi because it talks a lot about the things that we're learning about the different types of evidence and the different analyses that we can bring to bear on archaeological remains. So uh, Utsu was very likely an accident. And then there's recycling. Recycling is another flavor of cultural formation process. You might think that recycling started in the 1970s with the hippies, uh, thinking that we need to save the world. Uh, recycling has been going on forever. Um, if you have grandparents or great-grandparents who lived through the Great Depression, right? Um, they saved everything and reused it. Well, same thing's been going on for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and so people would often go into trash pits or set broken things aside that look like discard for use later. This, for example, this artifact is a pottery sherd that has been modified into a net weight. And so they've made this groove around it, and they would affix a piece of string, and then their fish net would have floats, which were made out of wood or some other um, buoyant material. And then they would make the fish nets. And then at the bottom, they would put net weights. And that's what this was. It was a recycled piece of pottery used as a net weight. Um, and so that's part of the history. It was very likely discarded and then picked back up and reused. Um, another the last flavor is uh, deliberate destruction. In many cultures where it's believed that things have a spirit or a soul, um, say buildings or items, uh, pottery, um, all kinds of different items have, uh, have a soul or a spirit, um, it's necessary to purposefully kill them. Like um, in the Maya area, a house is seen as a living entity. And so you know, it's, it's brought into life, and it's also brought out to life with dedication ceremonies. And so they would purposefully destruct it and burn it down. Burn it down, right? Um, other people would purposefully destruct a very famous case in the ancient Egyptian um, world when... A new ruler would come to power, and he or she, usually he, didn't like the predecessor or some of the uh, abominations of his, uh, usually his predecessors, who go about just like destroying their monuments, chipping their faces right off uh, of the monuments, or going to inscriptions and chiseling their name right out, trying to erase them from history, literally, right? That would be a type of cultural formation process, a literal or a deliberate destruction. 
All right, then moving on to natural formation processes. These are natural events and phenomenon. Natural events and phenomena which govern the burial and survival of the archaeological record. Natural events and phenomenon which govern the burial and survival of the archaeological record. Natural events and phenomena which govern the burial and survival of the archaeological record. I'm sure you can just spool off examples in your own mind. Um, we do organize them um, a little bit. Uh, one major source of natural formation processes that we really like as archaeologists, although usually it's not so great for the people involved, are natural disasters. Because natural disasters often don't leave people the time to clean up their messes or abandon things in a slow and gradual way. It's one of the few times that we get a real snapshot of an entire community in the archaeological record. So here we have um, images from the site of Seren in El Salvador. And it's the, called the New World Pompeii. Pompeii, I think I've mentioned already, was blanketed by ash by Mount Vesuvius. We have like written records and eyewitness accounts of how that happened. So it's really um, a great, it's almost like a, a citywide time capsule. You know, and the people find carbonate, uh, carbonized bread and buried individuals and like pet dogs and all these things that are well preserved at Pompeii. We have a similar event here in Seren where um, this Loma Caldera exploded and covered the whole town in ash. And Seren is the New World version of Pompeii. And it was so sudden that they found pottery with grains still in them. And we'll talk about why they are still preserved and they didn't rot in a little bit. And they also found where the ash would, let's see, would cover plants in the garden. So whatever the heck this plant is, I'm just going to draw corn because it's easier to draw. Not that I'm much. Okay. So there we have corn. And so imagine the ash coming down and covering, you know, three feet of the corn plant. And then it, it basically creates a cavity when it solidifies and then this rots out or burns out, it creates a cavity the size and shape of that plant. When archaeologists come by a thousand years later and they find this cavity and they'll pour plaster in and it fills all the cavities and then they dig away all the soil and what you're left is, with is a cast of that plant. That's what you're looking at there in the bottom uh, right corner, that's a cast of a plant. We have the same thing in Pompeii with people. And now the cool thing is they're doing it with clear resin. So the bones and stuff that are still in the people that they do this to, who have frozen in place, um, you can see their bones because it's just clear. Fun times. I don't mean to sound giddy about an entire town being wiped out, but uh, actually at Seren we didn't find many people. Uh, so it seems that they had enough time to get out of town. They just couldn't bring anything with them. Another famous site that dealt with a natural disaster is called the Ozette site. Uh, I think it's just one Z. O-Z-E, double T-E, I believe. Um, the Ozette site is uh, from the Pacific Northwest, and it was buried by a mudslide in the 1700s, if I remember correctly. And it's a snapshot, even though everything's been kind of crushed, it's a snapshot of a Pacific um, Northwest native com uh, whaling community. And they had amazing cedar, wooden cedar uh, with cowrie shell inlaid 
dorsal fins here, uh, war clubs, and buildings with boxes and materials, cloth, all kinds of stuff perfectly preserved. All right, so that's natural disasters. That's kind of a catastrophic event. It doesn't happen everywhere. Most places that we're dealing with have overarching climates and weather regimes that, or I guess climate regimes would be better, that dictate how well things are preserved. So we're looking really largely at climate. Um, for example, um, temperature, the driving factor behind all of these are temperature and humidity. So you have basically two options for temperature, high temperature and low temperature. Well, I guess and then the middle. And then for humidity, you have high, middle, and low. And if you get to the extremes of temperature, uh, usually cold, cold temperatures, low humidity are the best. High temperature, low humidity is OK. The only way high humidity is good is if it's complete humidity, like being buried in a pond um, where it's anaerobic. Right? But that's not really humidity, is it? That's kind of different. Um, so if we're looking at the temperate zone, like where we live, our temperatures fluctuate. Fluctuation's bad. You want a temperature that is constant. That's why people who are cryogenically frozen, they're not like frozen and thawed and frozen and thawed. They're just frozen. Same thing with archaeological remains in the natural outside world. Uh, if temperature fluctuates, it helps break them down. Because if it freezes and then thaws and then freezes and thaws, it's going to break down physically. If the humidity is in the realm of where microbes like to live, and there are microbes adapted for almost all types of humidity, uh, they're going to break down the organics. So not the temp often breaks down the physical nature, and the humidity often breaks down the organic nature. Not always, but pretty fast and loose. Uh, rules there. So places like King Tut's tomb, we have high temperature and low humidity. And so we had, uh, not only that, we had a sealed compartment. And I mentioned this the other day that when they cracked it open, the new oxygen that came in started the decomposition process again. Um, but it, those would have been held because they're underground at a constant temperature for thousands of years. And once it was sealed, you know, any microbes in there would have been, you know, chowing down on the organic material. Eventually, they would have eaten up all the oxygen and would have suspended. Then when they opened it again, they started up again, right? So anaerobic is, I guess, the third major factor, oxygen. That's why a lot of times in um, museums, when you see something that is very old and organic, It'll be in a sealed glass container full of nitrogen or some other inert um, gas so that microorganisms can't metabolize. Then we have the other end of the temperature spectrum. Uh, spectrum. We have um, <laughs> Peru's ice maidens. This is from National Geographic. Obviously, it's a little sensational. But the idea was um, people would be sacrificed by um, exposure on mountaintops. And up there, just like the popsicle, the low temperature doesn't hold much humidity. So they're both cold and dry. And it sucked all the uh, moisture out of their bodies and uh, kept them very cold. And so they were well preserved. Now you might be thinking, like this is a, you know, a, young, a young lady 
and it was very common uh, to choose. So what was it last night, Miss Universe? So imagine you're in ancient Peru and they have you know, Miss uh, Peruvian Universe, which is not too dissimilar to how they chose these people. And the most beautiful girl in town or in the valley or in the region, whatever, was chosen. And for an entire year, she was faded and people gave her parties and all kinds of presents and all these things. And she represented a god for that whole year. And then at the end of the year, she was killed um, as a sacrifice. So all those good things that people gave to her went then to the god. Uh, but one of the ways they would be killed is they'd be um, sedated and then brought up on these high mountain passes and they would be left to die. Dun, dun, dun. But they had quite the year leading up to it. So, you know, what, what's the phrase? Uh, live fast and leave a beautiful corpse or whatever. Die young, leave a beautiful corpse. This is a common thing. Um, and often it was supposedly the most beautiful person in town. Okay. Um, you'd see the Iceman, We've talk, I've talked about a couple of different times. He was um, not uh, pretty cold, pretty high humidity, but a little bit of fluctuation. That's actually how they found him. Um, he was completely under a glacier, and uh, he was on the side of a hill, I guess mountain really. Um, here's the mountain, and there was like this rock outcropping, and he fell right here below a rock outcropping. So this glacier would go down over time, and it completely skipped right over him, lucky, and didn't grind him into small bits, it just left him. And then over time that glacier diminished, and then once it got below his level, some um, hikers up in the mountains found him. They called the police, they're like, there's been a murder! We found a, an avalanche victim or something. No, he's like 5,000 years old. Um, very well preserved uh, for not being purposefully buried. Again, it's that being dried out, being kept in constant cold um, conditions that kept him well preserved. Neat, uh, neat thing he had, uh, his skin was so well preserved that they have tattoos, or that he had tattoos, and it looks like they corresponded to, when they did uh, scans of his bones, he had osteoporosis, excuse me, so um, arthritis in many of his joints, and a lot of these tattoos correspond to those. So it might have been that he was, those tattoos were for medical reasons. See along his back for a sore back, things like that. Uh, his knife with its sheath, his copper axe, which would have been a, kind of a pretty fancy tool to have, um, and his little get-up uh, was well-preserved. Here we go, the Franklin Expedition again. Again, frozen, cold. Oh yeah, I don't have the picture yet. These are uh, Perserkian, I can't spell, don't ask me to spell that, Siberian um, horse and uh, reindeer herders who had really extensive body tattoos and they were frozen in permafrost and you can still, they were able to trace all of these um, tattoos today. Fun story, a student I had in 2013 in the archaeology class and I showed this tattoo I just saw on Facebook two weeks ago she got a whole body tattoo like I she's gonna send me a picture that's appropriate to show for class um, but it's basically from here to here that whole thing she got it like from here all the way down her body I, I couldn't I saw it and I was like I know that tattoo and I wrote her I said 
did you see that in this class for the first time? And she's like, yeah. I said, oh, you have to send me a picture that's appropriate for school so I can show people. She's like, okay, I'll work on it. But uh, she hasn't yet. But I couldn't believe it. Uh, so she is a, she's an equestrian, and these people were equestrians. And this is a chieftain tattoo. And so she got this whole like giant stylized 5,000-year-old um, horse tattoo. Kind of, kind of awesome. Um, <laughs> then there are some other uh, unusual uh, situations, like the bog men. So usually, an acidic soil like in Mesoamerica, where I work, or have worked, um, it breaks down the body. But when you have extremely acidic soil, like in a bog, and anaerobic conditions, so the oxygen's taken out, it pickles the body, and it dissolves the bones. Although you can see some of the bones here on this bog man, he looks like a kind of like an empty sack because most of his bones have been um, eaten away by the acidic nature of the peat bog that he was found in. But it looks like he was killed. Uh, we're not sure if it was a ritual sacrifice or he was some sort of criminal. Um, but you can see the braided rope around his neck that was used to strangle him. You can even see the stubble on his face. And inside, they could even reconstruct that he had eaten like buckwheat pancakes or something like that for breakfast. Pretty amazing. Uh, they also have these tracks because who wants to walk over a swamp? So they made these roads out of, out of sticks. And the, every, all this is well preserved because super acidic, number one, and low in oxygen, number two. And here are some more of these so-called bog bodies. They're pretty, they're pretty amazing. They look like some aliens come along and like slurped out the inside of the bodies with a straw. Um, so yeah, um, then we have other extreme, sorry, I couldn't find a picture. How do you find a picture of acidic soil other than, I, not much of a Magic the Gathering person, but they had an acidic soil as a card. Okay, anyway, so um, these are the chalk cliffs of Dover. Um, chalk is very basic and can help preserve things that are stuck in it. Um, also salt, um, things that are packed in salt um, or honey. Basically, you know how we preserve food in different ways? By freezing it, by drying it out, by preserving it in acid, by making pickles, by preserving it with high sugar content like jams or jellies, or in salt, right? Um, those work just fine uh, for our bodies and other organic materials as well. And like I talked about before, if you're completely underwater, in a body of water that doesn't get a lot of oxygenation, so it's a, kind of an anaerobic situation, you'll have good preservation as well. So those are the main rules by which, um, by which we are able to preserve things. And it dictates what's available to us. Different regions have different things available to them because of their local environments. Um, and so kind of obvious question, why is it important to separate cultural and natural formation processes in the archaeological uh, analysis? Anybody? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, especially with um, if we were trying to reconstruct what people were thinking or how their culture worked, it's important to know if, is this person here in this ground because of a cultural formation process where someone put them there, or is it natural and therefore we can draw less information from it about the culture, right? So, yeah, absolutely. 
Type of material has a little bit to do with it. That's a little understatement. Some things we don't find very much in the archaeological record, like entire bodies with skin and cloth on them. Cloth in general, right? It rots very easily. Um, leather usually doesn't preserve, nor does wood. So the type of material, the more organic it is, the softer it is, the more uh, break-upable it is, the more fragile it is, less likely it is to be preserved. Whereas things like metal, stone, um, and pottery, which are all kinds of stone-like things, um, are going to be much better preserved. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.